the Anesthesia Podcast. So hello and thank you for joining us um, on this podcast, The Aerosol Debate. This is being taped on a Tuesday night. Last week we tried something new, which was a Twitter debate. And it went very well in terms of we had a great discussion between Tony Pickering and David Scott. Unfortunately, Ewan was bobbing in and out. The other problem was that actually none of you, you, the listeners, could hit anything at all. So we come back to it this Tuesday evening here in the UK, Wednesday morning for our Australian guests. And we're having a rerun this time as a recorded podcast. So we're here to discuss aerosols and aerosol generation. My name's Seema Agarwal. I'm one of the editors of Anesthesia, and I'm going to be chairing the discussion. So just a little bit of background to start with. Start of the COVID-19 pandemic, and actually before that with the previous SARS pandemics, we healthcare workers have been quite rightly quite concerned with our own protection while we treat our patients. This was brought into great prominence with some deaths of colleagues and a lack of adequate PPE at the start of the pandemic. Amnesty International estimate that globally there have been over 7,000 healthcare worker deaths from COVID. Over 1,000 of those are in the US, but there are over 600 of those in the UK. We've always been thought that aerosol generating procedures where there's exposure to respiratory secretions by airborne routes pay a large part of this morbidity and mortality. Hence, the high incidence of infection in ENT specialists and in dentists. However, recent data has begun to question whether anaesthetists are at an increased risk. Some studies, say the SAFER study, found that staff working in ICU had low rates of infection. But the Intubate COVID study found that 10% of staff who were involved in intubation either had symptoms or subsequently became seropositive. A possible explanation for the low rate of infection anaesthetists may be the use of PPE. So the fact that anaesthetists are prepared, they don't take risks. However, a new study which was recently published in anaesthesia may have an alternative explanation. In this study, which was performed in Bristol, they looked at the generation of aerosol particles in an operating theatre and found that tracheal intubation using face mask ventilation produced very low quantities of aerosols. One of our guests this evening is one of the authors of this paper, Professor Tony Pickering from Bristol. Almost simultaneously, we published a similar paper from an Australian group led by Professor David Scott. Crucially in this study, he found that face mask ventilation and and tracheal intubation actually generated 30 to 300 times more particles than background noise. So a very different result that, that the Bristol group found. So we've invited them here this evening to discuss that with us. We're also delighted to actually be able to have with us Professor Ewan Toby this evening. He's a senior academic with interest in aerosol generation, which precede the pandemic. So he's an aerobiologist. He's been measuring airborne pollen, dust and viruses and how it causes respiratory disease for decades. And he's come out of retirement to help us battle COVID. So to start with, I was hoping that Professor Pickering and Professor Scott, if you could briefly explain your studies, the methodology and what you actually found. So if we could start with you, Professor Pickering. Sure. Thanks, Iman. Hi from Bristol. Uh, uh, Thanks for inviting us to this debate. I'm very happy to be having this uh, discussion. And I'd just like to start by saying how... uh, proud I am to be part of the profession at the moment, uh, which has shown a great deal of innovation and flexibility in changing our practice in response to the challenge of COVID. However, uh, these changes to our practice have had some considerable implications for us in the delivery of service, 
And it's right that we seek to continually uh, uh, revisit and uh, sense check the precautions that we've introduced against the risks uh, as we can quantify them. Um, so the study that we've conducted is simple in principle. We've conducted uh, aerosol monitoring in a routine healthcare setting in an operating theatre during the performance of aerosol generating procedures, namely intubation, extubation and bag mask ventilation. This was done for patients having uh, urgent care for orthopaedic trauma or for neurosurgical procedures. In conducting the study, we've set out to measure uh, aerosols generated during aerosol generating procedures, namely intubation, extubation, and bag mask ventilation. We've done that for patients uh, uh, coming for procedures for orthopedic trauma and uh, neurosurgical interventions. Uh, in uh, measuring the aerosols, we've collaborated with a team of aerosol scientists from the University of Bristol uh, who've provided necessary expertise to make those measurements with some precision. We made two choices that are important to note in conducting these studies. The first of which was that we conducted the studies in orthopaedic theatres with high uh, airflow uh, ultra pure uh, ventilation systems which meant that the background of particles within the theatre was extraordinarily low, in fact, lower than you would normally find in an aerosol research lab. The second choice that I think is important is, is that we chose to reference our measurements against the aerosol produced by a volitional cough. This is important because the definition of an aerosol generating procedure is made with reference to the risk of particle production by a cough, that an aerosol generating procedure is defined as having a higher risk of aerosol generation than a cough. Therefore, we had that as a positive reference standard for all our measurements. With reference to intubation sequences, including bag mask ventilation, we found that the amount of aerosol generated was practically indistinguishable from baseline and actually was several orders of magnitude less than that generated by a volitional cough. In contrast, extubation sequences, uh, especially ones where the patient coughed during extubation, did generate measurable aerosol, uh, but the aerosol generated was always less than that generated by our reference volitional cough, reflecting the fact that the coughs during extubation are somewhat weaker than a cough generated uh, by a fully conscious subject. Uh, so our conclusion from that study is, is that intubation by the current definition of an aerosol generating procedure uh, in this setting should not be considered an aerosol generating procedure. Extubation does generate aerosols, but by the current definition, that's less than that generated by a cough. And again, should be considered uh, to be below the bar for being an aerosol generating procedure by the current definition. And uh, our punchline is, is that there needs to be a debate about what constitutes an aerosol generating procedure and the precautions that need to be taken. Well, luckily we're here this evening. Thanks very much for that 
brief summary of your study. Actually, the first question that pops into my mind is whether the definition of an aerosol generating procedure should be related to a volitional cough, but we'll come to that in a little bit. Um, Professor Scott, could I ask you to briefly summarise your study, please? Uh, look, thanks very much, uh, Seema, and hello to everyone from Melbourne this time. Um, and look, thanks for inviting uh, me to represent our group uh, to join this debate or discussion, uh, particularly in its updated format now. Look, our study was similar to and yet different from the Bristol study by Tony. Uh, it was conceived by uh, Dr. Rana Dillon, who's a neurosurgeon, and it was in light of concerns relating to transphenoidal surgery in particular for pituitary uh, removal, tumour removal. We felt, though, that it was important to make sure we, we studied aerosol generation during real-world clinical environment and included the anaesthesia uh, practices associated with that in particular. Now, to do that, uh, like the Bristol Group, we had to draw on the expertise of those who actually knew what they're doing in this field. Um, so our team, our co-investigators were from Climate Science at CSIRO, which is the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation in Australia. Um, that was uh, Rui Humphreys and uh, Jason Ward. And also uh, we had fluid dynamicists from uh, the University of Melbourne, uh, so Wagi Rowan and Kevin Kevin. So this collaboration meant we had expertise in a number of different areas uh, which complemented our clinical experience and expertise. So the important thing was uh, for us with this particular study was relating to anaesthesia. And the aim as, as for the Bristol group was to characterize aerosol generated uh, from induction of anaesthesia to securing a sealed endotracheal tube and also from reversal of relaxation to extubation and stable spontaneous respiration on a Hudson mask. So both very real world clinical scenarios. So we set up one of our standard operating rooms. It wasn't a high flow room. It was a standard room meeting Australian, Australian standards, which is uh, a lower flows than the laminar flows in, in the Tony's experience. And we had three types of equipment. So we had uh, an aerodynamic, aerodynamic particle sizer or APS, which uh, is similar to the one used by Tony's group, but a more sensitive version of it. Um, and this aspirates air from a sample line and using laser optical scattering can identify particles 0.5 to 5 microns in diameter in particular. In addition to this, we also had a mini wide range aerosol spectrometer or a mini RAS, which can identify much smaller particles, but it provides, uh, it takes a longer time to sample uh, and average over, averages over a minute. So less useful for the, if you like, the immediate spikes. And the third thing we did was we used particle image velocimetry or PIV, which is an optical technique whereby a sample volume over the patient is illuminated by a laser uh, and very high, ultra high speed photography is used followed by uh, digital processing to identify particle trajectory within the room. And we sampled at three different points over the patient. So our sampling point was uh, fixed in place rather than held by hand, uh, but similarly was uh, about 50 centimetres uh, cordad and superior to the patient's uh, face and mouth where the aerosols were likely to be generated. And we conducted three full intubation and three full extubation cycles as part of the induction of anaesthesia for um, pituitary surgery. 
and with continuous monitoring throughout this period uh, in a room where we had established a clean baseline overnight and also a clean baseline with all the staff in the room. And all the, all the people in the room were wearing uh, what we call uh, tier three or level four precautions, in other words, N95 masks and uh, waterproof gowns. So the, hopefully the shedding from those people was minimal. So what we found was a very low level of background par particle noise, which um, met the required Australian standards. We can discuss what those levels were. Uh, but we identified that during the process of intubation, and I emphasise the process of intubation, which involved bag mask ventilation, tube insertion, cuff inflation to secure a seal, that there were significant peak increases in particles detected over baseline. So in particular, with bag mask ventilation, we identified, as you mentioned in the introduction, Sam, at 200 to 300 times uh, the baseline level. And about a tenth of this with intubation and cuff sealing, the cuff sealing process itself. In a similar way for a period of extubation, um, there was very little particle generation with actual removal of the tube itself. But patient coughing and any positive pressure ventilation post-extubation uh, generated a significant aerosol spike. So what this suggests to us um, is that the processes around intubation and extubation, uh, in otherwise, so certainly with intubation, you've got a paralysed patient, uh, that's an important consideration, um, are very important. And that these processes in particular for us, bag mask ventilation, uh, any cuff leak, and also patient coughing are areas of particular particular importance. Uh, the other the other point we did mention what did identify with the image the particle image velocity was that the particles did uh, emerge over the patient's uh, face and travel uh, across the suspended in the air uh, down the patient's body. Thanks very much. Um Obviously, I mean, from a non-expert point of view, there are some differences in your studies. So the kind of location that you use, the machines you use to look for your aerosols. Could you, do you think that that's got anything to do with the reason you found a different result? Look, I think, I think we really need to explore this very carefully because there are, there are subtle differences between them. A lot of groups around the world are using varying pieces of equipment. So the... Um, the APS we used is a, a very sensitive uh, piece of equipment. It's not portable, it's transportable, and uh, as a result, uh, it's not the sort of thing you would just throw in the back of a car and take around to different places, but it is more sensitive. And so perhaps the sensitivity of it was a factor. The other difference was that our aspiration rate, so we had a fixed point of aspiration um, throughout the whole case, and our aspiration rate was roughly six litres per minute. So we were sampling at six litres per minute down uh, the sampling tube. This, obviously, there's a lag as it traverses the sampling tube. Uh, that was in our calculations. That was just a few seconds. Uh, so that can be a factor. Uh, I think probably the most glaring difference, and one worth of discussing a bit more, is is airflow. Tony will have a comment to make about that, I'm sure. But just to emphasise, our air, air exchanges were 26 uh, air exchanges per hour. Uh, so that means that uh, uh, that contrasts quite significantly, I think, with the certainly when he was in laminar flow mode with Tony's Tony's group, uh, and I think that makes a big difference as well. Uh, so uh, those are probably the the key things I'd emphasise at this stage. Um, we did also have um, you know the mini RAS, which was measuring small, very small particles, that tend to be averaging over a minute. So what information? that gave us was it validated the peaks that we were getting 
um, with the uh, APS, but we didn't actually use that as a core element of our of our uh, analysis. Tony, what do you think to that? Do you think that actually in your study, you set yourself up to be in almost a too ideal scenario, considering that a lot of our patients were intubating on ITU, in A&E, where there isn't this great airflow. And so actually the risks are greater than you found in your study. The first thing to say is we set ourselves up in a study design where we were monitoring real-world practice in, in theatre intubations, for sure, in a relatively controlled but an urgent care setting. Uh, these intubations were performed by a range of uh, uh, practitioners with different levels of experience from junior trainees to senior consultants. They weren't all smooth uh, first pass intubations uh, or extubations. And so we feel as though we had a reasonable spectrum of normal practice within the uh, 14 or so intubations we studied in the high flow setting. I should also say that we were aware of the potential issue with the flow. And just to give you an idea of what high flow is, it's measured at 0.2 meters per second. So if you turn that into a figure that you might be familiar with in terms of wind speed, that's 0.4 of a mile an hour. It's unlikely to trouble the hairs on your head. It's not really going to waft things away at a great rate of knots. And we we looked at both uh, volitional cough and also at intubations uh, in the setting of suspended laminar flow, which reduces the flow down to that conventionally seen in an operating theatre. And we saw no difference in the amplitude of a cough in terms of the profile of the particles detected and no increase with the intubation and bag mask ventilation. And so, uh, uh, although flow may be part of the picture, I don't think that really explains uh, uh, the differences that we've seen. However, I'd also like to take the chance to emphasise for the listeners, though we've seen many similarities. We've both seen low background particle counts. We've both been able to measure aerosol generated by coughs in a real world healthcare setting. That's never been done before. And I can't emphasize to you enough how important it is that we have that measurement. Uh, we both agree that extubation generates some aerosol particles and it's the cough events that are particularly prominent and therefore that links the clinically identifiable risk with the event. And we disagree really only on bag mask ventilation. I'd like to uh, throw out a question uh, to Ewan which is what is it about uh, respiratory airflows that generates aerosols? It, that is a very tricky question. I, it, there's quite a lot known about what generates human aerosols. And, and probably the principal way we think of this is the, the breaking of the mucous film on inhalation. Those particles then come out on exhalation. That produces largely very small particles, but any other activity in the glottis or the pharynx or the mouth also generates of bubbles of, of movement uh, will also generate particles and often larger particles. So I, I don't think I can explicitly answer the question and I don't know how 
bag mask ventilation relates to normal breathing. And it's certainly know that individuals differ very widely, probably a factor of 20 or more in the amount of particles that they produce. Um, so maybe there are quite big differences in patients as well. But I would be looking at the physiology of what was happening with pressure, et cetera, extenting the airways perhaps, and bag mask ventilation as opposed to spontaneous, normal, low-level breathing, which is what most of the studies have been done. That only partially answers your question because I think there are unknowns here. Um, but can I comment on a couple of other things that I think are important? And I think you're describing flow is important. And um, I've been doing, I've been assisting someone called Nick Wilson, who's now in Edinburgh, do studies in Australia on production of particles. And our experience mimics what you've been seeing quite closely, that we had to use sort of like a modified telephone booth to do these measurements in to get ultra clean air, to get the background low enough. And then we could detect the aerosols and coughing and talking and deep breathing, all those sorts of things. And again, we detected very large amounts. Um, and I think the difference in our study to yours is significant in that we sampled at 100 litres per minute and we put the person's head in a cone so we could collect all the aerosol. And then we could much more specifically measure the different aerosols produced by these activities and also by three sorts of NIVs that we were using, which was the purpose of the experiment. Um, so I think, I think one of the difficulties in doing these is that once you move the sampling head away from the subject, then you're dealing with cones of plumes of particles coming out from the person, uh, which can easily be distorted. And they depends on how fast they're coming out with a cough. They come out very fast at meters per second. When you're breathing, they're coming out at much lower flows. And so the actual sampling device you're sampling into a cone, which is only sampling at six liters or less, two or three liters, depending on the APS you're using. Um, most of those particles don't go into the cone and they're probably selected by the cone. <laughs> by the cone as well, depending on their size. So there are a number of fine-scale technical issues which will also give differences. Um, and I think in the case of David's study, I, I really wanted to ask him a question of, did they measure the particles just prior to the start of the procedure when the people were very close to the subject, when the administrating technicians or people, doctors, were very close to the person? Because what one thing we found was that the just movement of people um, generates quite a lot of particles, just sheer movement, um, aerosols off, comes off clothing. Um, and in fact, you get a spike, you know, when people even move, when, you, when you're trying to measure particles under these conditions. And so some of your particles, you, I know you use background with no people and with people in the room, but unless you were measuring it actually when those hands and sleeves and stuff were moving in the field that you were sampling in, then that, that background may have underestimated. This is a hypothesis on my part. I will see wasn't there, but I just know it's a phenomena that we saw um, thanks, you. And that's a that's a very important question. And yes, we did. We measured continually from the time the patient once the patient was placed on the bed. Um, and in fact, the sampling tube was in in situ prior to the patient being slid onto the bed. Uh, and we did detect all a little bit of we detected a spike from particles at that stage, which was presumably linen dust, things like that. And we waited for that to settle down before commencing. Uh, any any intubation or bag mass induction, in fact. So we removed, we think, that variable. We did have people in their position. We were measuring continually. Um, 
you pointed just a couple of other things that you commented on which i think are helpful i mean we talk about this concept of a plume and i think i think that's what we really got to look at very closely i uh, the, i think in my view there there are um two things which come from say a cough there's a spray and there's a plume and the sprays are heavier particles they are the ones which tend to tend to drop down through gravity um, and don't evaporate very quickly in that time uh, and disperse within a couple of metres of the, of the source. Uh, whereas a plume is what we're focusing on at the moment because I think that exposes other people in the environment to potential virus-laden uh, aerosols. So do we know that the COVID transmission is from the plume? Uh, the, 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 we know COVID transmission is from surface and contact. And so I think the spray is what soils the, the surface. And if you're close to someone, the spray is what uh, causes proximate infection. I think we've got pretty good evidence for that. And WHO would support that. The huge debate about aerosols uh, and airborne transmission, I think, is one we probably <laughs> we can't solve in, in this forum. But let's... Mm. I guess we're exploring the hypothesis that if that is relevant to nosocomial transmission, uh, then we need to define the characteristics of it. And so we're working on the defining the characteristics of it. Coming back then, so we've got this plume. Now, we sampled from the end of a, a tube. We didn't actually have a cone on the end of the tube to increase the sampling window. Tony, you basically put, uh, you had a, a large sort of funnel-shaped cone, I think, which from a picture that I saw uh, was held over the patient, and you and you had almost a funnel over the patient's head. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so Great. again... I think to have these discussions and, and to inform future research, something we have discussed offline is that we need to standardise the way we we uh, collect our samples and, and do these analyses. Can I make just one other point before perhaps others want to comment? And that's you alluded to it earlier, Seaman. That's the the definition of um, you know, an aerosol, an AGP, and. You know, you're right, the UK defines it as being um, that exceeds which are a cough or related to a cough. But um, the US CDC uh, defines it as a likely to generate higher concentrations uh, of infectious respiratory aerosols compared to coughing, sneezing, talking or breathing. So they've got a much broader definition, not just a cough. And I would suggest normally, uh, Ewan said something about respiratory films and inspiratory and expiratory, even with breathing, that um, maybe a cough is, is a very high intensity standard to relate it to. How would you define it? Well, I'm, I'm not a fluid physicist or a microbiologist, <laughs> um, but I think any procedure which, in, I mean, we, we would have to agree, again, if we're doing further studies on this, we'd have to agree on what is significant. We don't know what's significant from a microbiological point of view, but we do know that we can measure these things. Um, maybe Tony's got a view. So so I, 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 there, there clearly needs to be a discussion about the definition of an AGP that follows from this. The current definition uh, doesn't, doesn't uh, uh, cover duration of exposure in any sense and and that clearly is relevant uh, a small trickle over a long period of time could be the equivalent of a, a, a transient plume experienced over just a few seconds and and there's no there's no exposure quantification within that existing definition we can only work with the definitions that we have though and uh, I, I, a comment on the cdc definition 
The amount of aerosol generated by a deep breath is considerably greater than the amount of aerosol generated by a shallow breath. Uh, the amount of aerosol generated by somebody shouting at their computer screen is considerably greater than somebody mumbling quietly in the distance. And so, um, and, and these are orders of magnitude differences. These aren't just a few percent. And and so uh, there needs to be some be more rigorous thought about what defines an AGP, and that follows automatically from you being able to quantitate them. And, and that's why we're now in a better position to do that. And I, I fully echo also David's comments about us measuring a proxy measure for COVID risk. And we're talking about particles. And when you're thinking about uh, COVID, it's its size, that each virus is around about 100 nanometers, give or take. And therefore, particles below a certain size, below that size, are unlikely to contain any virus particles. And the difference in volume between 100 nanometers and a, a, a micrometer in terms of uh, diameter of particle is a thousandfold in volume and a thousandfold in terms of virus particles. We we sort of have to get our head around what are the appropriate units to be quantitating in. Um, I, I think we have to be sort of humble or prepared to revisit the, this concept of what an aerosol is in this. And it's interesting that the WHO didn't quite change its definition in July, but in October the CDC did change its definition of aerosols and in one sense about how COVID was transmitted. And interestingly, the CDC seemed to remove the concept of size. As people know, WHO defines it as less than five microns. But if you ask an aerobiologist what a what a particle is, as opposed what a droplet is, I should say, as opposed to an aerosol, they will give a figure somewhere between 30 and 100. So the particles which have this property of projectile travel and staying moist so that they fall to the ground, they don't have evaporate before they fall, five, it is not five microns. And I can talk about five microns. Five microns may be to do with penetration of the airways, but it's not to do with the movement of particles. Um, or their behaviours, you know, so that's why, and, and it was very useful when we were discussing things like TB transmission, it, that sort of works in that context, but I don't think it works. Now we've got much more sophisticated measurements, we can measure those, the full spectrum of particle sizes, which goes from 0.1 micron up to 100 microns or more that people are generating when they're talking. So there's a full spectrum, and to just place a particular line at 5 microns doesn't really make much sense to an aerobiologist if you're going to place a line at all, and I'm not even greatly in favour of placing lines, you would have to put it way up over 30 microns, bigger than pollen. Pollen travels around and gives people hay fever and that stays airborne for quite a while. So these particles less than 30 will stay airborne and will travel with, and depending on air movement and stuff, to what extent they travel under their own volition, to what extent they're caught up in air currents, etc. So I think we do need to revisit the concept of aerosol in terms of particle size, in terms of what's occurring within these procedures. And the aerosol which is being generated from the breathing is probably pretty small, probably one to three micron in its mode of size, but it will extend out to both smaller and larger particles. And it's not clear why. Obviously, some particles are removed by the, you know, larger ones are removed as they come up the airways because they get impacted just as same as when you inhale. And, and in terms of the volume differences, we found that these were 
were pretty profound compared to to um, breathing, that coughing was over a thousand times more in terms of numbers of particles. And about and if you looked at the volume, total volume of those particles, it's about two to three hundred times more on coughing. So there are huge differences, whereas um, somebody said that talking was about sort of 20-fold to 100-fold the volume differences and shouting obviously was a you know double or so that. So there are, there are um, large amounts of particles produced by all these activities and I think we need to look closely at the different, at the size ranges of these and the different quantities. But what constitutes an airway generating procedure lies somewhere within that. Uh, it's, I think coughing is an overestimate. It raises huge amounts of particles of all sizes, small and large. Um, but something like talking, which is probably the way that half of COVID is transmitted from people talking, because half the transmission is asymptomatic, unless it's breathing, in which case it is even smaller particles. So that what we're seeing in COVID transmission you know, does suggest that these small particles, which at close range can play a role, uh, yeah, I, that's fascinating, you and, and I guess in some respects that's supported by what we saw with our imaging technologies, the PIV, where we saw these particles, which PIV tends to pick up 10 microns or bigger, so it's a larger particles, uh, yeah. floating, suspended in the airflow through the operating room across the patient's body. I mean, the disadvantage of our approach was that we're really only sampling a very small window of space. It was 15 centimetres by 15 centimetres at the highest resolution. So we had to pick which spot we were imaging for each, each sample test. Um, but we did see this. So there are these larger particles. The other question I would have, uh, and, and Tony touched on it, is, is the, the different environments that we're practicing in. So, you know, intensive care, emergency department, uh, they don't have the benefit of the high flows that we have. And I guess that's another concern. But the other factor in the operating room is the humidity. So we control humidity pretty well. Uh, it's somewhere between 40 and 60% in most operating rooms, I think. Ewan, what's the effect does, it, does the humidity have on the particle sizes over time? Uh, okay. Um, that's been studied a lot. There are large numbers of papers and not everyone seems to agree entirely. But once your humidity goes down below about, say, 75%, with particles tend to, it sort of flatlines out, that they do tend to shrink down to this equilibrium size, which is controlled by a number of factors. And at least one of those factors is what is in those particles. And that varies from anything from 1% to 7% or so of non-water components, uh, mucoglycopolyphenols, polysaccharide, salts, surfactants, all those sorts of things. So that also affects the, um, the, the size to which the particle shrinks. And that size range is something like between twofold and fourfold most people hold. Some people take a wider range. Um, and the study of, of uh, breadth of uh, spoken aerosols using the same technique that you were using recently published in PNAS, um, they thought that particles shrunk from 20 down to four um, over a 15 minute period but they were showing torque particles being remaining airborne in a box for um, for the larger ones, I think it was about eight to 10 minutes, and for the smaller ones, which were still visualized by that technique, so they were still relatively large. Um, they were, they, they tapered off exponentially, but they went down to nearly an hour. Um, so those large, so-called larger particles can remain airborne in turbulent air. 
not in still air. Some of the measurements that we're used to in terms of talking about the um, the size, the, the time that particles remain airborne really relates to totally still air. And once air starts moving, um, then those particles um, through Brownian motion and through Stokes forces and stuff will stay aloft and, and exponentially decline depending on air movement in the room and turbulence in the room and temperature. Um, if I can bring the discussion slightly back a bit more clinically um, now. So if we think that at the moment, the, one of the great problems, certainly in the UK healthcare system, is that access to theatre is tiny because we have um, long waits between cases. So on the front of every anaesthetic room door in the United Kingdom is a number, which is the minutes you need to wait from having intubated a patient before you can move the patient into the theatre. There is another number on the theatre door telling us how long we have to wait before we can, after having extubated, we can take the patient out. This obviously is having a knock-on impact on how many patients we can get through. Do you think that it's time, and I'm talking to you, Tony, really, do you think it's time that we abandoned all of that and we took sensible precautions, they wore a surgical face mask, but on patients who've been screened as COVID negative, that actually that's all we should be doing and we should be getting on with running routine elective operating lists that we all, as we always have done? I'm going to answer that uh, uh, A, through the lens of our study, which says that uh, uh, the aerosols generated are less than you would be exposed to with a patient coughing on the ward. And if you were caring under the current UK guidance for caring for a patient on the ward uh, that was coughing, you would be wearing a surgical fluid resistant face mask and uh, uh, a fluid repellent apron and a pair of gloves. Uh, if we think about the risk here as being uh, split into the risk from the patient, the risk to the practitioner, and uh, the risk of the procedure, then what we're saying from our study is, is that the risk from the procedure is relatively smaller than had been anticipated. That, I think, changes the balance of risk. And if you have a patient who is relatively low risk and you have a practitioner who themselves does not perceive themselves to be at high risk uh, from COVID, then I think we can de-escalate. David, would you agree? Um, well, I would add a, a fourth thing into, the, into that equation, which is the environmental risk, the environmental controls. So you've got the patient risk as well defined, and you, we have low-risk patients and we have high-risk patients, and arguably now we have zero-risk patients as well. Um, and we have a procedural risk, and we're basically discussing at the moment what is that procedural risk with a, certain of the AGPs that we're talking about, and perhaps from what Ewan was saying, that AGBs, the aerosol-generating behaviours, are perhaps of even more risk. So patients who shout and scream at you and things like that who are distressed. Um, and so as a patient risk, procedural risk, there are then the PPE and the personal controls that you, you have and your environmental controls. So we've got good environmental controls in the theatre. And and just to focus on that for a moment, um, you know, the, the step down or the dwell period or the flush period, whatever you want to call it, for the theatre air. Um, 
we came uh, to the same to the conclusion that you needed roughly four air changes times to reduce to around about 99% of particles. And that's based on a historical modeling by the CDC. Uh, it's physics. It's simply physics. You, you're pouring gas into a chamber. It's mixing within the chamber and you're extracting gas out from it. You'll be uh, with one air change volume, you'll be left with 37% of that volume still there in that room and so you have to keep if you keep iterating that uh, you'll end up with a, a, a sum which is four times the air changes so for a 26 air change per hour it's roughly 10 minutes a bit less than 10 minutes do we need to do that is the question i think you're asking um, and uh, i would say certainly you do need to do it for higher risk patients and so we need to stratify the risk of our patients uh, and we we still haven't answered all these questions about uh, airborne transmission. Uh, I think we're pretty comfortable with spray and surface transmission and, and proximate transmission. But airborne transmission, I think, still is something we should be respectful of. Uh, Tony correctly pointed out duration of exposure is, is relevant. And I think that really applies to ward care um, and ED care, where there are nursing staff in, in proximity to a patient for a long period of time. And I would argue that they need a higher level of PPE uh, for the higher risk patients in that environment. Now that's against our, our Department of Health guidelines. They say if you're ward caring for a patient who's who's suspected or known COVID positive, you only need to wear a surgical mask and or vet and a, and a fluid resistant gown, gloves, etc. Eye protection. But uh, there is a, a strong feeling that actually, if you're going to be in that room for four four hours or more, you should actually have um, a respirator, a, a filtration mask. So I've just got another question for David, and I'll come back to you, Tony, if that's okay. So in the UK, and I'm sure in Australia as well, we do stratify our patients so they go elective patients or what we call green patients and they are all COVID swabbed before they come into the hospital they are told to self-isolate at home and they come into theatre to have for example a lap coli that patient then comes into an anaesthetic room we wear what I would consider to be standard precautions so a face mask gloves an apron but nothing more than that we put them off to sleep and they are they are paralysed and then intubated. I don't consider that to be a high-risk situation. Yet we still end up waiting in the anaesthetic room for the air changes and then going into theatre. And then when we extubate the patient, waiting in theatre for the air changes and then leaving. And so despite the fact that we've taken every reasonable precaution, we are still, in my view, wasting probably about half an hour waiting for all these air changes. Do you think that's a reasonable thing for us to be doing? It's all about prior probability, and at the moment, you know, and certainly in, in our in Melbourne uh, now, having been through a spike, uh, our community risk is incredibly low. So I don't, in that context, I think you don't need to do the, the uh, air change delays for those patients who are asymptomatic, no epidemiology, and who have um, who have tested negative. They're the lowest of the low. They're green, as you say, and so we should be managing them in that way. If you had a very, very high community prevalence, and I can't give you the number, uh, an epidemiologist might, but even still they're guessing, uh, then in that circumstance for that period of time, it would be prudent to have those air change delays on top of everything else. And something which really perplexes me um, also or, or concerns me is, you know, we're talk I think this is a lot of, this is about protection of our staff. And you do not want any of our staff to get in. Getting healthcare workers infected is is a major uh, 
risk to them. It's a major uh, burden on their family and it's a major burden on the healthcare system. And so we do need to be very mindful of the risk to healthcare workers and do what we can to minimise that risk. But to answer your question directly, I think green patients, as you describe them, in, this, in the context of a low community prevalence can be managed with our conventional practices. Oh, well, maybe we're doing the right thing because we're in Manchester, which has got one of the highest prevalences in the UK at the moment. Um, Tony, did you have a question or a comment to make? I was just going to uh, agree with David, uh, slightly disappointingly, I suspect, for the purposes of the debate, but uh, and say that I think there does need to be a reappraisal of the precautions that are be taken on the wards around high-risk patients particularly. Um, I think that also weighing into the debate needs to be some consideration of the consequences, not just the time delays, but actually the consequences for anaesthetic practice of wearing particularly airborne PPE and and how hard uh, it is to communicate, how how uh, the impact it has on our team working and uh, the inevitable uh, increased risk of uh, errors uh, in care delivery it's 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 absolutely inevitable that that occurs and of course there's an environmental cost too because all of this is single use uh, disposable uh, stuff and so we we have to be mindful that, that there's a balancing up that has to be continually done uh, in in weighing up uh, uh, how we practice you and have you got anything to add no, I, I think I agree with both David and Tony. Uh, I, I think having staff on wards wearing uh, droplet precautions when you can have people coughing or shouting or talking is um, ha- has a high level of risk associated with it. Um, I think we're starting to becoming increasingly aware of that. Um, that's about all I can add. Um, so the the other thing we talk about is the, is the efficiency and delays and. We have a we have a difference, I think, uh, with with Tony's group about bag mask ventilation. Uh, one of the practices I think we all do for known COVID patients is we don't have positive pressure ventilation. We pre-optionate them. Uh, if the system is sealed, we paralyze the patient. There's no bag masking. There's no ventilation until the tube cuff is up. Now, I would suggest that, therefore, if you do that practice for medium risk patients as well, or even low risk patients you don't need to ventilate the room afterwards. If you've not had an opportunity for generating an aerosol during the intubation phase, patient hasn't coughed, patient uh, has been paralyzed, they've been apneic oxygenated until um, until intubation, tube is sealed and then you ventilate them. I think in that environment, you've got, um, you, you, you can argue uh, based on certainly on Tony's information, that you you don't need to you don't need to uh, have a, a delay while you ventilate the uh, anaesthetic room. Uh, if on on the other hand you were putting in a laryngeal mask, jury's out. Don't know. You know, there's a little bit of a leak around a laryngeal mask. It could be quite a high velocity leak across the mucosal surface, which could create uh, a significant aerosol. More studies to be done. We were looking at uh, high-flow nasal prongs 
and we saw very little increase as the as the flow rate went up using just breathing as the background and even when we were using the BiPAP CPAP systems um, either dual or single we only saw a very small increase about a two or three fold over the breathing rate even at the highest flow rates um, and to what and that differed a bit between those two systems um, so the data is still being analyzed but it, within a sealed system we were not seeing uh, large amounts of aerosol at all being generated and certainly less than somebody way less than somebody talking um, so they're only a factor of between one and three and in fact for some procedures if we got people to exercise or shout or cough or something when they were wearing one of these systems there, there was much less aerosol than if they were not wearing one of them so in one sense they, and even when they were breathing so in some sense perhaps the um, the greater pressure stented their airways they produced less aerosol we're not sure but those methods seem to be relatively protective for aerosols in the in the working environment when they had a cone over the head sucking the air from around them and it would seem to me from what you all said that actually the almost ideal anesthetic technique then would be to pre-oxygenate, get them off to sleep, big dose of muscle relaxant without any bag mass ventilation, intubate, do the operation, get them breathing deep, extubate deep so that they don't cough and off you go to recovery. What do you think about that? So, so uh, I, I think there's there's some sense to that. Although I would say that uh, the jury's out on the interventions that uh, should be made around extubation, and there are risks with extubate, well established risks with extubating patients deep, and especially if you change your practice uh, in in low risk patients, patients who are at low risk of having COVID, to try and uh, prevent them from coughing which actually is unlikely to be transmitting COVID and instead expose them to the risk of an airway event because they've been extubated deep. And, and, and I think there needs to be some work in that territory uh, to just see what is an effective measure for reducing the risk of coughing around extubation uh, in, in relatively higher risk patients. Uh, can, Seema, can I ask uh, perhaps you or Tony or yourself, I mean, a lot of our concern related to intubation was related to SARS experience, uh, the original SARS, uh, where there seemed to be a six-fold risk uh, to healthcare workers who are involved with intubation. What, why do you think that was a problem with SARS? And at the moment, you know, uh, putting the intubate COVID registry um, aside for a moment, uh, at the moment, maybe that's not such a thing for... Um, COVID-19. The linkage uh, between those uh, SARS reports and it being due to airborne transmission of SARS, uh, that that that's uh, that linkage is, is uh, assumed but far from proven. And and given what we now know about uh, the other routes of transmission for coronaviruses uh, that could have seen those staff exposed either through contact uh, uh, with surfaces or contact with other people uh, within the work environment would provide probably a, uh, at least as plausible an explanation, if not a more plausible explanation. And certainly when you're looking at the difference between our experience now and the experience with SARS uh, originally, I, th I think that we have to be mindful that, that still 
the evidence, the, the the weight of proof is with uh, contact transmission and and uh, uh, for COVID. I, I would just add the the only study that I'm aware of that has measured viruses under these circumstances measured influenza, um, and that didn't, didn't was not able to show an increase in virus exposure during these processes. Um, it's, it's incredibly difficult. It's not, not easy measuring um, COVID, oh, sorry, SARS-CoV-2. Um, it's difficult collecting viable samples of the virus because it gets damaged on, <clears throat> it gets damaged on sampling. Um, but I think until we can progress to at least measuring it by PCR, um, then these questions will really remain unanswered. And, but it, I think it is certainly worth doing. There must be opportunities to do this and we need to have very skilled people who can safely measure those aerosols and help resolve this. Thanks very much. That brings me very nicely to our final question, which is really how you see this field developing and what studies you think we need to be doing in the future to try and rationalise our use of PPE whilst remaining protective of our staff. Yeah, thanks. So so um, we clearly have some work to do with David to work out why we're reporting different things around bag mask ventilation. And, and uh, clearly that's a priority between us. We can't leave it here as, as uh, seeing different things. Um, we're currently Currently doing a study of superglottic airways uh, along the same lines as our intubation study. Uh, the team in Bristol, and it is, I should emphasize, uh, a broad team. There's an aerator study looking at a variety of aerosol generating procedures across a range of hospital settings. And also the uh, aerosol scientists have teamed up with some uh, virology experts and are doing some of the work that we've just been talking about relating uh, uh, the uh, actual uh, infection risk uh, from aerosols. And so there's quite a lot of work going on uh, in, in our territory uh, to address these questions. I'm sure our listeners will be glad to hear that. David, have you got any thoughts? Uh, well, I think Tony highlighted the, the importance of characterising uh, the areas that we've, we've found a difference, so bag mask ventilation. That's, I think that's really important. Uh, High-flow nasal oxygen, um, Ewan's obviously doing work in that area, but I think we, we do need to understand more about that. Uh, you know, it's quite, you know, we've been very concerned about it, yet it's such a useful tool, and it may be that the high velocity of gas going in is actually just diluting um, a very small amount of any potential aerosol, and so the risk is quite low, even though dispersion may be high. And then that comes to that latter question, and, and what Tony was talking about, I, I, I can't but agree, we need to know what matters. We need to know what type and size of aerosol matters. And you know, there are many things we won't know. We won't know the inf infectivity of the patient, any, any given patient's viral load at this stage, we don't know, but yet with HIV, we can identify uh, active load uh, in some patients. So we may be able to characterize that for respiratory infections as well in the future. And that would give us a better way of risk stratifying our patients. So those four pillars that we talked about before, the patient risk, I think we need to do, we, we hope, I guess it's up to our virologists and microbiologists to help us characterize how risky they are, what what amount of virus are they likely to shed with a, with an AGP? Um, the procedural risk and define an AGP and work with other groups and and and, and establish what is an AGP and, and when can it be done and how can we prevent that? Uh, the environment that our 
practice is in. We're lucky, I think, to work in high-flow theatres and we should be reassured by the safety of those environments, relative safety of those environments, but we can't be lax about that. Um, and then what we do to protect ourselves, whether it's on the wards or in ED or in theatre, in terms of duration of exposure and, and type of PPE that we wear. Uh, and of course, all those other factors. So in interactions with others, hand hygiene, not, not getting too close in the tea room, that sort of stuff. <laughs> Ewan, from your point of view? Um, I, I, I'm really in agreement, I think, with both David and Tony here. I think this whole thing of what is dose, what is size and what is time, all of the interaction between those three is, is really important. We need to learn a lot more about this. If we take influenza as an example, and it may not be the best example, then small particle doses going into the lung are much more potent than larger particles landing in the nose by a factor of about 100. So these, the size of the particles and the dose we're receiving, and as Tony said before, over time, is, is really important to better understand in this context. I think the other thing that we need to be cognizant of is that the distribution of the virus may change quite a lot within different people's airways, depending on the stage of disease or just individual variation. Um, and, and, and patients themselves, when you look at a group of patients, there are very large differences in the amount of virus that they can have. And so um, it's difficult to have one size fits all when you're developing these procedures. We need to have a better index of each of the risk of individual patients. So we may have to pre-sample in more than one way, um, but both from, by nasal swabs. We were also, we did a study looking at school children measuring exhaled aerosols quite easily uh, by collecting those exhaled aerosols and quantifying them. And a lot of children do have exhaled rhinovirus. Um, so I think there are techniques we could develop to look more carefully at the risk that any patient presented, because that's probably a very worthwhile thing to do before you go into a potentially high-risk situation. These secretions coming out of the airways are obviously loaded with large amounts of virus, um, and they present quite unique risks. There are different risks to what's happening in the community. Um, you, you are suck, taking a tube out, which is coated in you know 10 to the 10 or something, of probably quite, quite active live virus um, on there. So you have to be very, very careful how all those situations are managed from someone who never goes into a theatre. <laughs> well, thank you very much, all three of you. It's been a really, really interesting evening's discussion. And you and we were great. It was great to have your input today as well. We missed you on um, Thursday evening. Thank you very much, all three of you. It's been a really stimulating evening's discussion. Thanks thank very much. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Great. The Anesthesia Podcast. Thank you.